Hi, this is Trevor Kozak. You're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey Ben, how's it going? It's going deliciously. Deliciously? Are you Mm. eating something? No, 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 it's just oh. delicious. Okay, uh, good. You can see, you can clearly see in the shot on Zoom that I'm not eating anything. I thought maybe you might have had like half a pizza just out of frame. I couldn't like, tell. Nom, nom, nom. Exactly. You're just like chowing down. So, so Ben, who is on the show today? We have a, a real break from how we usually do it. It's oh. not, a, not a cinematographer, <laughs> but an agent of cinematographers. Like Ooh. literally an agent, someone who, uh, let's say you're a beginning cinematographer or a somewhat established cinematographer and you don't have an agent, Trevor Kozak is here to tell you what to do. Does he answer the question of like, hey, I don't have an agent. How would I get an agent? He talks about how you could get his attention as an oh. agent. All right, and, well, great. It, and it's interesting when you think about it. And it's something that I don't think about. I, I mean, we all think about agents in terms of actors and writers and directors. Uh, we don't necessarily think of agents necessarily as much for below the line uh, cinematographers, costume designers, editors, production designers. You know, but when you think about it, a guy like Trevor Kozak, if, if he and he talks about this, if he finds out that name a director, Catherine Bigelow is making a new movie. He It doesn't matter if he knows her. He's going to call her up and pitch his clients to her or or to her producers. And in that way, I feel like agents like Trevor have an enormous impact on the movies that we see because they will. I mean, I didn't deal with any agents when I was making my movie years ago, but I did have an issue of the DP who I wanted. The producers wouldn't let me hire. So I had to go out and start meeting new DPs. And in part, that was why I wanted to create this podcast, because I didn't know how to talk to DPs. I didn't know what, I didn't know how to find them. I didn't know where there wasn't a ready resource of them. And somebody like Trevor, you know, if he heard that somebody like me was looking for a a cinematographer, he's got a roster of people. And some of them are people we've had on the show. Fantastic. And uh, he spills the the beans. He he will give you a great idea. So if you're a DP, you know, and and you're looking for an agent, you could probably, you know, seek him or people like him out. And uh, he tells you how to do it. I will definitely uh, give your interview a listen. Um, so, Ben, it is our regular close focus time. What, what do we have to talk about this week? Well, I believe this was my short end a few weeks ago, and I wanted uh, to recycling talk, uh, a little little bit of a recycle. Okay. Uh, I wanted to talk about a little engine that could kind of movie that has been in the top 10 for several Ooh. weeks now. How many that, weeks? I believe it, I think it's five or six. Yeah. Ooh. OK. Yeah. And it's not been at the top of the top 10, but it also uh, was made for $250,000. I am, of Ooh. course, talking about Terrifier 2. Terrifier and 2 being directly in your, your wheelhouse as you are a, a giant horror nerd. But I am, uh, I, I am a giant horror nerd. And I have to say that, well, first of all, uh, full disclosure, one mm-hmm. of my very close friends is a guy named Steve Barton, a.k.a. Uncle Creepy, the guy who created Dread Central. <laughs> wait, wait a second. One of your good friends is called, known as Uncle Creepy. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. That's that. That's him on on Twitter. Is at Uncle Creepy. Steve <laughs> is one of the funniest people I know. He's brilliant. 
If you think I'm a horror fan, I'm an amateur compared to Steve. Okay. Uh, uh, you're, he, you're just a tourist, huh? <laughs> he's such a horror fan that he created one of the preeminent horror sites, Dread Central. He's no longer with them. And in fact, one of their direct competitors, Bloody Disgusting, was one of the companies behind Terrifier 2. Now, the first Terrifier I remember seeing and being like, oh, that's kind of cool. But it didn't like it didn't stick with me. And I didn't really think very much about it. I mean, it's got a murderous clown in it. It's uh, directed by a guy named Damien Leone, who does uh, this is what I learned. He does like all the makeup effects. He does all the physical effects like he does every little part of it. And, and the he's fir- the director and he's the director in the first Terrifier, which I kind of watched and was like, eh, me, this is pretty good, whatever. And moved on with my life. It was made for like twenty five thousand dollars. And it does not look like it was made for twenty five thousand dollars. It looks like Whoa. it was made for significantly more. Terrifier 2 uh, went up by one order of magnitude. So two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Gotcha. And so far is about if it hasn't crossed $10 million in profit, it's close. And I believe it is the longest slasher movie ever made at clocking in at around two and a half hours. Ooh, oh, uh, and, you, and, you know, I'll add one extra little tidbit here. I just found that it was actually released uh, back on August 29th. So it's at 10 weeks now. Yeah, that movie has been kicking ass. And I have to say that one of the reasons uh, that I think it actually is doing well is that it's really pissed off, crusty, square old people uh, oh. to, the, to the point where they're saying things like there are people they're accusing it of uh, being of low morals and and saying people are vomiting in the theaters. And I believe like, you know, Fox News had a had a headline about it. And, you know, it's like when you tell kids that something is like a depraved, horrible thing. And I say this is one of those kids. When I was a kid, the kids seek that shit out. They want to see it. And Terrifier 2 is not, I don't believe it is tr- making pretensions of high art. It's trying to be in the canon of Freddy Krueger's, your Freddy, Freddy's Krueger and your Michael's Meyer and your Jason's Voorhees. And uh, I, Okay, so, so you're right here. I just did a quick search while you were chatting me up. Of course Fox I was right. Fox 10 Phoenix uh, does a whole story about how the horror film Terrifier 2 is causing viewers to puke, faint in the theater, and the producer warns of graphic violence. And sure enough, they have a picture here with uh, some emojis hiding people's identity, but someone who doesn't look like they're feeling very well in the lobby of a, of a movie theater. And then there's a quote here that someone had tweeted that they had puked in their popcorn. So. <laughs> and... Uh, okay, and having seen it, and obviously I, I have quite a stomach for this kind of thing. No, it, it didn't make as me... As gory as Freddy Krueger? No, no, it's extremely gory. I mean, like, I'm not going to walk that back, but it's just like, it's going for gross outs, but it's not like... I, I've I've seen grosser. I've seen way grosser. <laughs> okay. There, there's a Japanese movie called Tokyo Gore Police that the first five minutes of that has more gore than this will ever have. But I think that uh, what it does have is it, it has a really compelling creepy villain in art the clown that it's created that's a really well-designed bad guy and Mm. you know you kind of think about the iconic bad guys michael myers with the mask and the jumpsuit or freddy krueger with the sweater and the hat and the burn skin and the finger knives or jason Voorhees with the hockey mask which i I, even as a fan of those movies i don't really understand the hockey mask but um (laughs) you know uh he wasn't like a you know a goalie or something. And, There's not some, <laughs> and like as a clown, Art the Clown is like the opposite of Pennywise. Could hmm. could not be less Pennywise like, but is really really well designed. And this movie is long. It goes against all conventional wisdom what they've done, and yet 
it's raking in the money. And uh, does he have big red floppy shoes? No. <laughs> how about a, how about a red clown no. You know, nose? No. Yeah, he, he has a, a big hooky beaky nose. Uh, does he have a clown car full of horrors? Where like you know he ate, walks around <laughs> with a trash bag full of stuff. Oh, okay, gotcha. I, the reason there are several reasons why it jumps out at me that that this is good news in a sense. And that it's a movie that's you can get it streaming on Screenbox right now, and Screenbox only costs twenty five bucks a year. Yet people are still going to see it in the theater, and I think it's because there's a level of spectacle in here that we're not getting even in other horror movies. This movie captures something. There's something about like the horror movies, of the late sixties, early seventies, like early John Carpenter, early Cronenberg, early George Romero, Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, big time, where you watch those movies, especially if you watch them in the, in the headspace of someone of that time. And there's something like, what's wrong with who made this? Who wanted to make this? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that all the time, but not just with horror films, yeah. so. <laughs> but like, but like there's just something depraved and wrong and over the top, not over the top, but just like there's something disturbing about the thought to make the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre at that time. I'm not saying, you know, Toby Hooper seemed like a perfectly awesome guy, but I feel like Terrifier is one of the few movies that's ever done that. You see movies by people like Rob Zombie and it's like there's nothing scary about Rob Zombie himself. He's a rock star, you know, like he's just he's a perfectly normal, awesome rock star if you like his his music and his movies are whatever his movies are. I feel like this, there's something about it where you're like, what, what is up with the person who's making this? And that, and to me, that heightens what's scary about it. And it, even though it's low budget, if you love the movie, if you hate the movie, I don't feel like you're going to look at it and be like, that looks like a $250,000 movie that it doesn't look like an asylum movie. It looks really good. It's the look of it is accomplished. The acting is good. Would, would I make a slasher movie that was two and a half hours long? No, I probably wouldn't because I tend to think 90 minutes is a perfectly cromulent time frame for a movie of, of like this. But it's not stopping people from seeing it. And I appreciate the fact also that even though it is a sequel, it's still kind of a relatively obscure piece of IP. So to me, it's like line all those up. None of that makes sense with the conventional wisdom of what works right now in a time where, you know, it's... Uh, if it's not a reboot or a remake or an adaptation of something that we've already seen or something like that, that we're not going to, we're not going to get it. Or that the only movies that do well theatrically are like huge comic book movies. Well, here's an insanely low budget horror movie with a kind of obscure IP, you know, like the first terrifier was, I think like 2015, 2016. And it was seen, but it wasn't a theatrical hit. And I feel like we should all be inspired by that. Anyone who wants to make a movie should be inspired by the idea that you could take a small amount of money and turn a big profit on something that no one's ever heard of, even in today's IP obsessed times. That That's why I think it's interesting. Hey, Ben, you, you know, as you were describing the the thought process that you have in the theater when it's like, What's with the person who made this thing? Who, what, 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 you know, what deranged lunatic came up with this? You know, I can remember the last time I had that thought. It was 2019 and the movie was Cats. <laughs> <laughs> and I stand by that. I stand by that. It's, it's not a horror film, but as I'm watching it, I really thought like an awful lot of people had to look at this and go, yep, that's good. 
Keep well, that's, going. That's the opposite. Like when you have something like that, which is a very well-established IP with a huge audience and people having high expectations of it, and then someone coming in and making a train wreck of a movie, just a, a, just a head scratcher. And yeah, people went to work like grown adults with college degrees and MBAs gave them money and they lined up a shot and somebody uh, like with Terrifier 2, if the director decided to just go off the rails and make a, a piece of garbage that nobody ever wanted to see, he's really got no one to blame but himself. But on something like Cats, like, with like a, a hundred, hundred million dollar budget, yeah. 27 fucking committees have to be like, Oh, yeah, we love the design of Rum Tum Tutter. Let's keep on going in that direction. <laughs> hey, get the VFX people to start erasing buttholes. We don't want to see yeah. any buttholes on any cats. So. <laughs> my, my, one of my favorite comedians is always tweeting about, like, you know, the, you know, good, good fellas with the realistic CGI butthole cut is now out, you know. <laughs> uh, well, Ben, let's get to the interview with Trevor Kozak. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we're here today, uh, kind of a change of pace. Not a cinematographer, but a cinematography agent, Trevor Kozak. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. So uh, give me the 50 cent spiel. Like, what is it that you do? Uh, what agency do you work with? Like, if I met you on an elevator, what would you tell me about yourself? Sure. I work for Worldwide Production Agency, you know, WPA. In short... I fill the role of agent, and that is including to finding and procuring, you know, new work, new interesting directors while managing to maintain the relationships that cinematographers have that they've built along the way and managing to keep it all in balance um, as they move forward through their path. So you guys represent directors as well? Cinematographers, yes, directors, production designers, costume designers, editors, um, really the people behind I, what I call the real movie magic. Mm -hmm. And you guys specialize in commercials, right? We do it all. I mean, really we specialize in motion pictures, but we do television and commercials, music oh, okay. videos. Yeah, I think we, we cover most mediums or sectors of, of what cinematographers or anybody would have a hand in helping craft. So, I mean, it's interesting that you do above the line and below the line because usually like a lit agency would handle directors, writers, uh, talent agency would handle uh, actors, and I know that there's a lot of agencies that handle all the crafts, you know, editors, DPs, uh, yeah. stuff like that. And we've had several of your clients on the show. Yep, so, you sure have. Uh, who are some of your of your clients? Larkin Seipel, Charlie Amazing. Saroff, we talked mm -hmm. about Larry Fong before we jumped on here. Par Ekberg, Simon Duggan, who's doing the new Furiosa prequel. Uh, with George oh, Miller right now. Uh, very lucky. There's a, there's a lot of interesting people that I get to work with. I would consider myself very, very lucky. Yeah. And so let's start at the beginning. Uh, when did, I always ask DPs, when did it occur to them that being a cinematographer was a career path? When did it strike you that agenting was a thing that you might be interested in and, and you decided to pursue? I kind of last minute fell into it. Once upon a time, I was, I was pre-med. I oh, went wow. to school for biology. I graduated with that degree, but I think, you know, in my last year, I know in my last year, I knew I was good at it, the science of it. And I am sort of like a science nerd, mm -hmm. but I knew that it wasn't going to make me happy. And much to the chagrin of my family, they were kind of like, no, you know, half of them were medical, the other half were entertainment. And I think I went to them and was like, 
I don't really want to be a doctor anymore. I know this was kind of your idea, but you know, we all know I, I love cinema. I love movies. Well, you know, how do I take steps forward to that? And got introduced to a couple of people at was what was once the former just William Morris agency and had, was able to ask them a couple of questions about what they did for a living without having, you know, my family sort of taint my opinion, just sort of very third party. Let me ask you some questions. And it was great. They gave me a lot of insight, you know, and after two phone calls with them, like, you know, as I was graduating college, they said, well, if you're ever in London, come see us. And I was like, well, actually, I'm going to be in London next week. I'm going backpacking across Europe. And I think that they both were kind of like, oh, we didn't expect him to say that. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I ended up meeting up with one of them. We met at a tiny little pub, had a couple of beers, kept it pretty real and, and quick. But, um, you know, at the end of the conversation, he was like, do you want to be an agent? I was like, I, said, I don't know. I, I'm not even sure. I'm, I'm young. I don't even know what that really means. But I think that being in the mailroom at an agency anywhere would kind of like be going to get a master's and going to a business school, but getting hands-on practical training along the way. And I think he found that pretty interesting. He said, well, I can't give you a job, but when you get back to LA, call me, I'll make sure the LA office gives you an interview. Did the interviews, got the job, and then you know, six or seven months into that job, uh, Endeavor bought William Morris, and then you know, last first guy hired is the first guy out. And you know, that was my first, that was like 2008, there were no jobs. And I think I probably went job hunting for a solid six months maybe two dozen interviews and, you know, there's people with like JD is getting jobs ahead of me, sort of um, hyper, hyper competitive world and got an opportunity via some friends at ICM. They said, there's a desk opening to you. Are you interested? And that's sort of when I realized that cinematographers, again, the people who I think are the real movie magic, along with every other craft editor, production designer, not to discount anybody, had representation and that there was somebody there willing to help facilitate and give their time to sort of further and better those I've maybe underrepresented people at the time. Anyway, to keep it short, got the job and never looked back. So, so the, the job was representing cinematographers or? It was working, you... at, uh, working as an assistant in the production department. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you, you kind of gravitated towards cinematographers. Immedi immediately, immediately fell in love with it head over heels. And what about it? Was it that, uh, you know, because you don't you didn't come from a film background. Right. What was it about cinematography specifically that uh, that interesting? Knowing you? that, like, these are the people that craft the image that help mm. a director get to where they want to go visually and seeing what was possible, the tricks of what cinematographers can do to, you know, cheat night for day or day for night or it's creating emotion with frames and lighting. It was such a new thing to me and I just took to it like a moth to a flame. Have you like visited a lot of sets at this point? Oh yeah. And it's one of my, it's my favorite thing. It's the best part of the job. You know, it's like sitting at a desk is part of it, but getting out and seeing uh, everybody move about set, the energy, Getting to pretend that I play a small role in it all is... is, is. Yeah, more more than a small role, man. If, I mean, I always say that probably the two biggest choices a director will make is the lead actor and the cinematographer. Because if you change anything else, you'd end up with mostly the same thing. But the cinematographer, have Larry Fung shoot the same script as Larkin Seipel, you'll have two completely different movies. 100%. 100%. And, and so the fact that you're somebody who's facilitating that and helping make that happen and helping cinematographers find jobs and build careers, that's enormous. It's again, like I just consider it my small contribution. Like here's my ingredients, let's go try and make something great. And that's just the way that I look at it. It's, it's, I try to take a back seat to it all. 
being on set though, like reminds me of like, oh, this is why we all work so hard. And, you know, again, it's more exciting for me because I don't get to go do it that often. So, you know, people yeah. that get to be on set, like they probably find it uh, a bit more ordinary than I do, but it's the best part I mean, of the job to me. What's awesome about it is that it, it's never ordinary. <laughs> you're always, you know, when, one day you're standing in the middle of the desert and the next day you're uh, in a sound stage on a green screen with a guy in a robot suit. It's always different every day. Or on a, or on a volume stage in the middle of the desert. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so take me through your process. Do you scout out new cinematographers? Do you go to film festivals or take submissions? Or like, how do you find the fresh new voices behind the camera? Yeah. And it's not a perfect science either. Yes, absolutely. Film festivals are a part of it all. I generally try to make it to as many as I can. Sundance, Toronto, you know, Cameramage is coming up in, I think, two and a half weeks at this point. I can't believe that. And, oh, wow. you know, people reach out all the time saying like, you know, I'd love, you know, for you to take a look at my work. Do you think you can set some time? Um, and I always try to take everybody seriously, no matter where they fall on their path. You know, whether or not it ends up being a fit for me, it's subjective, I suppose, at the same time. But generally, if I see a film that I love, I mean, like, you know, I, I'm somebody that's just going to go tell that person, like, I love what you chose to do there. And whether it's about a certain frame, the way that they kept something out of focus, but intentionally left it there so that your eye would see it and it furthered the story indirectly. And as I see stuff, I'll, I'll say something. And if they want to have a conversation about, you know, working together, awesome. If it's not the right time for them, totally get mm. it. Um, at the same time, they get people come to us all the time. And, you know, I try to assess whether or not I'm in a place to further their career. Sometimes they're fresh out of film school and it's like, yeah, it might be a, a tad early, but like, let's keep the conversation going. And I'm always, I tell every single one of them that I end up saying like, it's not time that don't hesitate to reach out with questions. You know, we're, this is a very small community. We should be holding all of each other up and supporting each other no matter what. So don't be afraid to ask a question. I'm not sitting here in some ivory tower. I, I'm very accessible. You were kind of touching on it, but sort of my next question was like, if somebody approaches you, what kind of material do you need from them before you would consider signing a, a new client? I can only speak for myself, but I need to fall in love with the work that they're doing. And it's it's hard to exactly personify or illustrate or explain. To give it an example, there's a film that one of my clients shot, and he was already a client, but again, like, you know, as I watch this movie, the way that he framed this relationship, even between two men, made me like made my bones shake. Like it was real, it was visceral. And mm -hmm. the way that his camera you know, put these two people together made me feel something. So that's what I'm looking for when I watch somebody's work is what did it make me feel? And do I think that other people would feel the same way? Again, not a perfect science, but generally that's what I go on is my own gut instinct. Are there specific genres that you tend to gravitate towards when you're looking for people? People around my office generally, they go, Trevor always watches the darkest stuff. Like just, <laughs> I don't know how he goes to sleep at night after watching an episode of XY dark you, drama. You and me both. <laughs> it's just, I can't help myself. But I, and I do think that a lot of like, you know, the human condition gets told in those sad, dark stories as well. Um, and I think that's what I'm drawn to is real human stories. Stories about the human condition are what draw me in. Describe how you know whether it's the directing, directing and casting. Like, mm -hmm. what are you looking for specifically within cinematography to go like, oh, that they've got it. 
It's a fair question. There's obviously a certain level of expertise that goes with all this and the years of which people have been working. Often you can tell when shots are super complicated. You know, did they use a spider cam, steady cam to a handoff or something like that, like where they really had to choreograph camera movements. Like you can tell that this person, like you said, has, has got it. They understand how to draw the audience in. Granted, it probably took a lot of planning and prepping, but for that camera to move across an entire scene took X amount of hands and minds. And to sort of lay credit to any one person is hard to do. You're like, oh, well, that must have been the director. That must have been the cinematographer. That must have been... It's, it, it's hard to, to know without asking that person what went into X, Y shot. But, you know, there's... I'm trying to think of, you know, let's use... Everybody has seen Children of Men and what Chivo did with that oneer up the street. Oh you know, like, that's insane. With you all know? those oneers, holy crap. Yeah, <laughs> and... You look at that and that was something, even the shot within the car where, you know, the, the windshields are like, yeah. you know, coming on and off the car as the camera moves around. Intense. You know, it's intense and so ahead of its time at, yeah. as well. You know, that I think really put a spotlight on what filmmakers could do with a wonder if they had the resources to do it. And so, yeah, love, there's a level of expertise to it all that I sort of keep an eye on as well. So it's interesting hearing you talk about like the various techniques they use. And again, kind of fixing on the fact that you don't have a film background, but it sounds like you've picked up on a lot of the kinds of techniques that people are using. Are are you watching like there's always trends in techniques and the way lighting and stuff changes. Maybe 10 years ago, you would always hear about the uh, orange and teal look where it's like the mm -hmm. faces were super, super saturated orange and the backgrounds all went blue or teal. Are you paying attention to those trends and seeing who's using, you know, whatever is the, Absolutely. the or orange and teal? Absolutely. And it's, I think there's always going to be a flavor of the moment. And, you know, there's an aesthetic that people adhere to at any given point. I think even seven or eight years ago, things tried to be a little bit milky or washed out a little bit yeah. uh, visually. Like, you know, and whoever started that, I'm unsure. I think it somewhere came out of, you know, the European area, whether it was Scandinavian or Belgian, it's hard, it's hard to know. And a lot of people wanted that. And I think that a lot of people who were doing the opposite of that, who that's, and here's the thing too, is you can't ask people to do something that they don't want to do. Right. There's people that yeah. that aspire to be heavy lighters. They, you know, want to use reds, purples, blues. You know, you, we see a lot of it in euphoria right now. But, oh, yeah. you know, even before that, a friend of mine who's a, a very successful cinematographer was doing it before euphoria, granted, in a much glossier and slicker way, didn't have that 35 millimeter grit or even 16 grit to it. But whilst this you know, washed out milky aesthetic was going on, he started losing out on work because that's not what he was known for. And now we're getting into like, you know, how cinematographers have a brand. Well, it's, I always hear the opposite. Like, you know, we'll talk to, um, like we talked to Anthony Dodd Mantle yeah. and, and it's like Anthony Dodd Mantle sort of has a brand, but sort of avoids having a brand. Like we want, we want to, you obviously want to avoid having a brand. Like you don't want to be pigeonholed. You want to be able to span the gamut and be you know, and for being able to accomplish anything, I suppose. Mm. But, you know, it's like in trying to talk to this friend of mine in explaining why things had perhaps slowed down for him, I, you know, I said like, well, this is what people want. You know, do you feel like you want to bend? And he was like, no, I don't want to bend because this is who I am as an artist. And I 100% respected that. 
And that is part of the day-to-day conversation, I guess, as an agent that you have with your clients is, this is what's going on out there. And they're not always the easiest conversations. And the hard conversations is where the rubber meets the road on good representation. Like you can have the hard conversations. And like I get a lot of flack around the office because I throw this cliche saying around that sugarcoating only gives you cavities. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're able to have those hard conversations and say like, look, you're losing out on this work. Let's be true to who you are. Or do you want to be flexible? I'm here. I'm here to help either way. Let's have let's have that conversation. So, again, at the end of the day, I respect, you know, an artist's choice in being who they want to be and that being reflective of whatever image or brand they want to put out into the world. Well, well, let me ask you this, like with all the different streaming outlets, all the different platforms, even though sure. that we're going through a bit of a contraction now, yes, I feel yeah. like there's so much variety in the kind of stuff that gets made. Does that make your job easier or harder in terms of like now you're like, oh, crap, now I got to track, you know, HBO Max and Shutter and Netflix, whatever, uh, and get somebody approved at five different companies before they can even get a job there? Or or is it like, oh, I see, you know, a uh, guy who likes to light everything dark. There's a great thing. You know, here's something going on at AMC Plus. That's a perfect fit for you. Does the landscape shift kind of affect what, what is the effect on, on how you do your job? You know, covering all these different streamers, production companies, studios, like that's not the hard part. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of colleagues that are incredibly talented at what they do and keeping up with all those different executives and producers to see what they've got coming on, no matter what the streaming outlet. But to answer your question, because the, even though we're going through the contraction, like you said, you know, there's still so much content out there trying to decipher how each production company or streamer, what, how they value the material that's being produced, right? Because we've all turned on Netflix or HBO Max and you scroll through the queue and you're like, wow, like, you know, I see it. I remember reading that project, but wow, that's all the way at the very right of the queue. Nobody's ever going to see that. And you have to try to assess. And it's again, not a perfect science, but you know, how much do you believe that Netflix or Hulu is going to be pushing this once it's done. Once we're in post and once we're at wrap and they start rolling it out, like, are they going to put it front and center? You know, when Hulu first came out, what was the first thing they, that they rolled out? And they put a big marketing point was The Handmaid's Tale. And again, like you read that and that reads dark and gritty and they needed a big coming out party for, you know, their own platform to keep to compete with Netflix. So you try to look at those different variables and be like, okay, well, if we put somebody on this, aside from the material being fantastic, Hulu's going to get behind this sort of thing. And so that's where you try to assess who should we plug in here, who are the filmmakers going to respond to, are they going to get approved by Hulu at the same time or whatever the streamer is, I suppose. Now, your agency covers directors as well, as you said. Yeah. Do you endeavor to create kind of marriages between directors and DPs at the agency? Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you go about doing that? Because, you know, some like I've, I've been in a position where I was looking for a DP and it's it's part of why I wanted to start this podcast and because it's like kind of hard to find the right person for the job, depending on yeah. what it is. Yeah. All we try to do is set people up for their own conversations. You know, the directors are going to make their own decisions regardless of whether we represent them or they're represented somewhere else. They have a vision for what their project is going to be. And, you know, they also want to make sure that they can be on set with somebody who's going to be collaborative with them and seize the project the same way that they see it. They have a partner in crime. However, yes, we take steps to put them in the same room, 
let them know that, you know, yes, they have the same team around them, that there's a mutual family or, you know, aspect to all of this. And, you know, again, like it's just another way for us to sort of create opportunities for both sides of the fence. So let's talk a little bit about commercials because it's it's sure. highly specialized. We've had a few commercial people on the show or I mean, we've certainly had tons of cinematographers who do commercials. Sure. But like the commercial world, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of a different animal from TV and a different animal from movies in that a lot of it's run through production companies that rep directors, DPs, blah, blah, blah. What's the synergy or lack thereof with an agency and a production company possibly repping uh, one of the cinematographers? Or am I just wrong about that? Well, I don't know that a production company would rep cinematographers unless you're like Lance Accord and Park Pictures mm. or you know, Joaquin Bacasse at MJZ once upon a time. You know, yes, you, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head as far as them repping directors. Uh, I think commercials is a great birthing ground for a lot of interesting folks. You know, you look at you gener a couple of generations ago or even just one, you know, a lot of the directors that came out of commercials, I think the most obvious one that makes, you know, big budget movies is Michael Bay. Mm. Um, you know, but fin various... Fincher too. Didn't Fincher, he Fincher, did commercials and music videos. Yep, yeah. Yep. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting people that can't come out of this world and you can hopefully catch them at a very early time in their career where they haven't established a relationship with their next great cinematographer that they can't do anything without, you know? And mm -hmm. so it's, it's, I think, a really great place to experiment, to play, even music videos, being able to do some stuff that you normally wouldn't get to do on a motion picture or a television series because there's just a little bit less avenue for experimentation in those mediums where in music yeah. videos are like, let's try, let's try this. Like this hasn't been done before and we got to make it fit into a 60 second package or a three and a half minute package. And you sort of hone your chops. You become a real professional in telling a story in a very short amount of time. And if you can accomplish that, I think you're kind of set up to be able to springboard into motion pictures that move at, you know, a, a slower pace, you know, making the, and again, like it is apples and oranges as far as what it takes to make a movie versus what it takes to make a commercial. And I think that there's a very small select group of people that are able to bifurcate their brain and, okay, well, today I'm on a commercial, tomorrow I'm on a motion yeah. picture, and being able to hire the right crew around them that, you know, can do both and move with them in and out of, you know, these two different mediums. Yeah, big, big fan of commercials. I think it's also a great way for cinematographers and, again, designers and editors, not to discount anybody, to help pay their bills while they wait yeah. and can be selective for what the next right project can be. Because here's the thing too, is it's very easy to bury a commercial that you're not a big fan of, but it paid the mortgage and you know kept your food in your kids' mouths, but you cannot bury something. It's harder to do at least to take something off of your, your motion picture resume. Once it's there, that's it. So it's a hard decision to make and you've gotta be ready. You've gotta feel like whatever's on the page, whatever that next motion picture or television series that you're gonna do, mean something to you, that it resonates, you know, it might be a comedy and you didn't see yourself doing comedy, but if it meant something to you, then okay, great. But again, like harder to, you know, take something off your resume in the narrative world than it is in commercials. So I think commercials are great in buying you time to be selective. 
Well, and let me ask you too. Uh, let's say you're in that situation with a hypothetical cinematographer, and they go off and do commercials, and like, let's say they kind of hit a groove with that for a while. They they uh, connect with a, a couple of directors or whatever, and they end up on a humongous campaign or two, and it kind of takes them off the table for features, even for mm-hmm. a year or so. Is mm-hmm. that a fear that it will be then hard to get them back into the feature world? No, because I have no problem taking somebody off of a commercial and put them on a movie. It happens mm-hmm. every day. You know, yes, people go on a run and they become used to how lucrative it can be and to take a step back and cut your paycheck in half, perhaps. You know, that's a tough pill to swallow. But at the same time, we're talking about the longevity of things and having, you know, a good arc of a career that you can be proud of. So as far as them getting stuck in commercials, no, that's not a thing. Like I've taken people off of commercials after their book. It's taboo. I don't enjoy doing it. But if there's a movie out there that they got to go do, then they got to go do it. And that's the end of the conversation. And I don't even want to imply that it's stuck in commercials because some people yeah. love making commercials. Exactly. That's what totally. wakes them up. Yeah. You know, there's the people that get up every day and that's what they love. I still love commercials. Like, I mean, that's, again, like I still think it's a, a, an incredibly diverse place of filmmakers that, you know, have, haven't been discovered yet. And that's where a lot of it happens. What are some of the things about like trying to find an agent if you're a cinematographer just starting out that that you should know or that you should be ready to discuss if you if they were lucky enough to get you on the phone and talk to you about it? I would encourage people to be confident in the work that they've put in thus far and to yeah, be proud of that because it takes a lot of courage to reach out to any stranger who's going to hypothetically or potentially be critical of the work you've put out thus far. And no matter what And again, I'm taking myself out of the equation. No matter what that person says to you, you should still be proud of the work you've put in. And getting an agent is a step along the way. It is not the only step. You know, we are here to help. We are here to help facilitate. But that doesn't necessarily, once you get an agent, you're not, the hustle doesn't stop, right? Like you as the artist still should be out networking and conversing with as many people as possible going to screenings, going to the festivals yourself, just trying to use every opportunity to meet somebody because you might go to a Panavision party at Sundance and there's a director at that party with a film there and you guys get to talking and you know you randomly, you hit it off and boom, you've landed your next maybe job with them. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you know, and we, again, like we, we go to all these festivals, but and do our own hustle, but the hustle doesn't stop you, you yourself as the artist also. But when you get an agent on the phone, be proud of the work you've done, have in mind what it is you see for yourself in the next year, in the next five years, you know, who are some of your biggest influences? Yeah, and again, I think that that's a very, in this town, a very cliche question and answer sort of thing. Like, oh, what's your favorite movie? And even though our minds go blank when everybody out, anybody asks you that question. No, but, but knowing your influences, especially as a cinematographer, because yeah. I mean, again, we've talked to hundreds of them on the podcast at this point, and it's interesting to me that like some of them are influenced by architects, some of them are influenced by painters, some of them are influenced yeah. by stills photographers, and of course, yeah. a lot of them are inspired by other cinematographers. Yeah. I mean, I have a Gordy Parks book sitting on my desk and I tell people all the time, like, you know, when they're putting together their their lookbooks for a movie, for a director as to how they see the movie. One thing that I suggest to people is it's okay to be, it's great to be influenced. We're, we're, I'm here for it, but don't just take screen grabs of other movies and put them in your lookbook and send it to a director. Because A, that seems lazy to me, even though some of them could be incredibly great references. 
but using still photography to me brings out more emotion and depth and grit and you know brings out the more fine art aspect to it all rather than like well this is a this reminds me of the tree of life shot going across the dry lake bed and there's a woman in a white dress sort of thing you know mm -hmm. so have your influences and if that means architecture awesome if that means photography great fine art even better no that's good to hear yeah yeah and you brought it up. It wasn't really one of my questions, but I'm actually um, interested in, in this. Like when a cinematographer is going to talk to a director, do you suggest that they go in with a lookbook already to go? You should have it. Feel out how the conversation is going. You know, I think that generally we've all got pretty good spidey sense as to am I clicking with somebody? Mm -hmm. And I say I usually advise people go to the meeting, have it. If you feel like you guys are on the same page whip it out. Let's go. Let's talk about what it is you've put together. But if you feel like you and the director or whoever you're meeting with are sort of the roads are splitting and they're separating and you can feel it, keep the conversation going, but don't pull that lookbook out. Take a moment, reflect after the meeting, perhaps tweak it a little bit. If you feel like you still really liked what the director was saying about the project, let's make that abundantly clear too. They're like, oh, I didn't see it that way. And I, I still love that, but I'm glad I didn't whip this book book out because they might not have agreed with what I put together and now I've taken myself out of the running. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, go home, reflect, tweak. Usually, you know, we have our clients show it to us. They always ask for our opinion for whatever they, whatever it's worth. And then- how, how long are they? Like what's, what would you see in most of them? It could be as little as five. It could be as many as 70 or 90 pages sometimes. Whoa. Yeah. You know, and I so feel bad if I put a, if I put a seventy page document together. I would too. I mean, it's I, I totally <laughs> get it, but everybody has their process at the same time. Yeah. So you know, that's kind of like the the rules of the road for the lookbook. In my opinion, is feel it out, and if you feel like you know there's some synchronicity, cool. Let's let's get that lookbook put on the table. And I always prefer bringing a tangible book or some sort of portfolio, but showing up with an iPad or a laptop. I don't I don't know like. Yes, cheaper and more efficient, but there's something about leaving a, presenting a leave behind, I, I think is a nice touch. Although like, well, I you would know better than I would, but like these days aren't probably a lot of those first meetings happening, much like our current conversation over Zoom. Totally. And that is, that is something that we've been coming up against. And I, and I love Zoom for what it is, because you can be anywhere and we can have, you and I can have this conversation from the comfort of wherever we are. Um, mm -hmm. And we've had to roll with the punches as has everybody else. And yeah, in those instances, you're presenting it digitally. Absolutely. Well, and when we were getting ready to start the podcast, which is like eight years ago, I was talking to a cinematographer, a friend of mine. He's like, so you want to talk to people who like, you know, get paid to kind of be behind the camera? They're, we're not the most verbose people on earth. I haven't found that actually to be the case. We've, we've gotten yeah. some just phenomenal people. But Absolutely. do you find that when someone's going in for a job and I don't want to name any names for obvious sure. reasons, do you find that their personality and salesmanship, their showmanship in the room has an impact? If like, if their work is amazing, but they're kind of introverted, quiet people, as a mm -hmm. lot of them are, is there an impact on that? Do you, do you ever like coach them to be a little bit more, uh, Again, I, I don't like know, it goes, gregarious? It goes, it goes back to what you were, what you and I were saying earlier. I would never ask somebody to be someone they're not. Mm -hmm. And, that is kind of just my mantra. However, if it's a project that they're like, like, I have to do this, you know, I'm super nervous about going into it. Like, yes, there is a coaching aspect to it, uh, 
And it's more just, you know, building up their confidence. Like, you got this. Like, you know, you're prepared. You know, you're super enthusiastic about the project. You know what the director's done. You know what the writer's done. These are all things that you can sort of lean back on and keep the conversation going should you ever find yourself in a spot of a lull sort of thing. But to say to somebody, you're an introvert, you need to be more of an extrovert, like, that doesn't that doesn't feel right either. Mm -hmm. You know, I gotta, I gotta let the artists be who they are. I think that's a great place to leave it. Before we go, could we get the website of your agency so people can check it out? Absolutely. It's wp-a.com. Cruise over there, you know, poke around. If you guys have any questions, anybody, don't hesitate to get in touch. Thank you so much for your time. Please, everybody, check out that website. And I can't wait to talk to some of your... <laughs> some of your newer clients. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. All right. So that was Trevor Kozak. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Trevor. I hope that that illuminated lots of people and uh, blew some minds. I knew it blew mine a lot to talk to you. So thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Ben, it is bill paying time. We've never had that before. No, we have that almost every week. Never. So uh, we got to thank our friends over at Aperture. Aperture, maker of fine LED products. And I just found out recently, widely used on Better Call Saul. So yeah, Better Call Saul, making use of uh, Aperture lights. Pretty cool. Didn't know that. Better use Aperture lights. <laughs> Better? It writes itself. Oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. You're clearly a dad now with the quality of your, uh, <laughs> the quality of your, oh, your puns and jokes there. Ben. It, mm. it, you know, it, it's something genetic, though. I think that the moment you become a dad, the jokes just get. Anyway, let's go back to Aperture. Aperture, makers of these fine lights, uh, they've got a big <laughs> Black Friday sale coming up. And if you would like to take advantage of the Aperture Black Friday sales, uh, you should reach out to Hot Ride Cameras. Hot Ride Cameras is going to have all the Aperture stuff on sale. We've got a ton of Aperture stuff in stock and we'll be honoring those deals and prices. So if uh, you want to get an order in, even if we run out of stock, uh, we're going to honor the prices. So on Black Friday, shop hotridecameras.com and you'll be able to order all of your Aperture sale products. And now, short ends. I can't believe we're already talking about Black Friday. Believe it. It's it's November. Ugh, I can't believe it. <laughs> anyway. So, Ben, it is our short end time of the show. What is your obsession this week? What are, what are you into? It better uh, my, it better not be your own podcast again. <laughs> no, but uh, if you're going to bring it up like that, it's not a podcast. It's an Audible original. It's called Catchers. You can go find it on Audible right now. And if you don't want to subscribe to Audible, uh, you can uh, get a free trial for 30 days. And failing that, reach out to me directly and I might be able to hook you up with a code. Ooh. You can find me on Twitter at Neptune Salad and uh, maybe I can get you a code. But you can absolutely get it for free if you just do a Google search for Audible 30 day trial. You'll find a place where you can do that. Get it. Listen to Catchers. If you like Audible, stick around. If you don't, uh, just give me a nice rating and uh, or give me a bad rating. I don't care. How are the reviews for that going? The reviews have been like really good. We're at four and a half stars out of five. Mm. We've got, I think, like 650 something ratings so nice. far and a lot of written reviews. I mean, like, you know, as you can imagine, a fraction of the people who listen to it even bother to rate it. And a fraction of those people would bother to write a review. So we know it's and been listened so, to at least 657 times. <laughs> we, we know that. But my, I mean, like Audible obviously isn't going to give me those numbers, but they were nice enough to tell me that that is, you know, like the number is significantly higher than that. And uh, the written reviews have been mostly very, very positive. Uh, there's a handful of people who hate it because they're calling it woke. And I'm like, I don't 
really i mean i that certainly wasn't our goal in writing it was <laughs> the to, wokeness was was, was i mean yeah i mean they it's were like hoping if for, you're they met, were hoping for racism what were they going for <laughs> yeah, i think Sexism, they were hoping that it would, all, it would all be about a white guy telling a bunch of minorities and women and younger people how stupid they were gotcha. and i think that uh, that is that's the kind of story that they were going for oh uh, we've only got a couple of those most of the reviews have been super positive and people are are, are digging it so uh uh, All right. So, yeah. so what's your real it, short end? then? My real short end is an app that you can get on your iPhone and I believe also on your Android phone. Uh, I recently upgraded to a newer iPhone, the one one that has LiDAR, uh, although you don't need LiDAR for this. This app is called Polycam. You can download it for free and mess around with it. But if you want to like really use it, it's still not that expensive. I, th- I want to say it's like forty five or fifty dollars a year. And what Polycam allows you to do is you can take your phone and you can take an object and take a series of photographs of the object and it will create a 3D model for you. It uploads all the photos and extrapolates it and then gives you a 3D model that you can bring into basically any 3D software. So you could bring it into Cinema 4D or Blender uh, you can bring it into After Effects. You need usually like a third-party plugin like Element 3D to do that. You can even bring it into to things like uh, SketchUp and AutoCAD kind of programs. And the quality of these 3D scans are pretty amazing. And people will put stuff up there too. And you can just grab somebody else's 3D scan. And to me, it's like, let's say you were doing a scene in a movie and you needed a Coke can or something to be on the end of a pool table, say, and it's a handheld shot that's moving around. Well, you could scan a Coke can and 3D track in After Effects and just drop that thing right in there. I don't know if it's something I would use for something that was like mega close up, but I think you could. I was watching, uh, I, I know I've referenced them a lot on here, Corridor Crew, they were showing the making of this short film that one of their employees had made where it was like a guy and a robot doing stuff together. And he'd shot this scene where the that robot was dirty. supposed to no, 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 no. It was just like adventures. It was, it okay. was it, they were having adventures together. They weren't doing stuff together. They were they were having adventures. They were, they it was were, like it, it was like they were roommates. It was like they were uh, they were bro kind of roommates. And he had like a person standing in for the robot and sitting in a chair and standing up like on a couch or something. And he used polycam to basically recreate the couch to make it easier to paint out the person who is there and using, you know, basic distortion stuff that you have in pretty much all of these software apps, he was able to to integrate it in, into his filmmaking. I, uh, I think if I were making a movie right now, I would use Polycam to scan every location because you can use the LiDAR and stuff on your phone. And it's shockingly easy to use. I was able to scan my house and it like shows you where the doors are, where the windows are, where hallways are, you know, where the roof is. Like and then it can also say like, oh, these are shelves and it'll make a 3D model of your house like in minutes very quickly. And you can use it to make schematics and stuff like that. I would use it to scan. If I were making a movie right now, I would use it to scan every location and every prop. I would just have the prop people scan the stuff because why not? All you have to do is like put it up on like a C stand or something like that. Put a neutral background behind it. Shoot it under shaded lighting so that you're not getting hard directional lighting in any direction. To snap a bunch of pictures on your phone it uploads it and it's like what if you needed to add the prop somewhere what if 
you know, there was a continuity problem and the prop was supposed to be, you know, in, in a place that it wasn't. You could fake certain things pretty effectively with it, I think. And I'm editing a project for somebody right now where they had a technical issue involving a door on their shoot. And I was like, oh, maybe I could just go to your location because they have access to the location and just scan the door and see if I could drop it in in After Effects. It doesn't seem like it would be that hard to do, but maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. I haven't used it for a real project yet, but I know that people are using it for real projects. And again, it's called Polycam. I believe it. you can get it for Android or Apple. Check it out. I think it's a really cool app. It's, it sounds really cool. How about yourself, Ilya? What is your short end this week? Does this give you any clues? I, uh, nothing. Nothing is your short end. I don't know. No, what, you, you what. couldn't hear that? So, Ben, imagine that you've just heard the Indiana Jones theme. So, yes, you may be aware. You may not be aware. But Indiana Jones Five is going to be coming out in 2023. This is directed by James Mangold. That's correct. James Mangold and Harrison Ford has signed on for it, although he has sworn this will be the last one that he does. Uh, We've heard that before. It seems like as long as the dump truck still gets, you know, more filled with money, he he somehow manages to. uh, to, Who's shooting it? Is is Faden Papa Michael shooting it? I don't think they actually have the cinematographer listed and attached to that, but I'll, I'll double check here. Well, I know Faden uh, works with James Mangold a lot, so. You are correct. Faden Papa Michael is attached to the project. Look at you. That's pretty sweet. That is pretty sweet. Uh, okay, so I'm excited about this, but also just announced today, and this is not exactly groundbreaking, but Indiana Jones is returning to the little screen. And by returning, a lot of people don't remember that there was the young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which had two seasons. Uh, Indiana Jones coming to the small screen. Disney Plus has announced it's in active development now. So hmm. uh, I hope they get Dan Gilroy. I hope they get some. I hope they get some. Uh, yeah. Some. Well, Dan Gilroy might be a little busy with Andor. It, it's so funny because for the longest time, I felt like Disney Plus could not lose with their with their original series. You know, Mandalorian, WandaVision, Loki. They had so many good ones. And I feel like it's been a little sluggy since for a while. And then Andor, of course, is, you know, like yeah. among the best shows on television right now, you know. Yeah, it, it really kind of has sort of like a great escape caper vibe to it. I'm still not caught up with it completely, but I really like the, the, the hard right turn that it, it took and sort of really got into this, uh, you know, which feels like a classic caper sort of thing, which is which is wonderful. Anyway, well, I, I'm hopeful that if they can capture the same sort of magic like, you know, that they they did with Marvel television and they now have done with some of the the Star Wars series, if they can bring that to an Indiana Jones world and just kind of let that breathe a little bit and let that open up, there could be some really spectacular stuff done there. I'm looking forward to this if it turns out to be true. I always felt like it was was actually a much richer world than like the Star Wars world. And uh, I know there's some people will probably, you know, uh, be disappointed hearing me say that, but I think that Indiana Jones is just a much more fun sort of world to be in. So here's my question about the new movie that I'm sure there's no answer for. Yeah. Are they bringing back Shia LaBeouf? He doesn't appear to be listed in the immediate credits that I can see here on IMDb, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge is listed, which I think is kind of cool. Is she one of the writers? Uh, no, she's listed as one of the cast. So Interesting. Yeah, I know. I will be, I'll be interested to see if they try and continue Indiana Jones 4 with this or if they're just kind of like, eh, last crusade and then yada yada this now. I, I don't know. I think it'd be pretty bold of them to try to kill Indiana Jones. I think that might that might be interesting. But yeah, maybe I don't they maybe they could start by killing Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> he's not in the credits, so something tells me he's he's mm-hmm. not in it. So 
I don't know. Well, they could do like what they did with John Connors in uh, in the last Terminator movie, you know. That's true. Or Logan in the last, you know, Wolverine movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but maybe not. Anyway, so Ben, I think that just about does it for this episode. Where can people find you if they want to track you down? Well, first you should go to audible.com and you should listen to Catchers in its entirety and then give it a very high rating. Other than that, you can find me. I don't know about Twitter, man. It, it's, it's really, it's really, it's, you're, you're it, not all about Twitter now. I mean, I'm no, no, I'm still on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm sticking it out. You I still I, got I your just, blue check mark. You're paying eight bucks got, a month. I, I'm not paying anything for my blue check mark, but I still have an, a blue check mark currently. So we'll see uh, when they when they come and tell me I have to pay eight bucks a month. That will be the very day that I say I don't need a blue check mark anymore. I really never needed one in the first place. But on Twitter at Neptune Salad, feel free to say hi if you're a listener to the podcast. Uh, you can go to BenRock.com and you can find all my socials. You can see my my reel, see some of my work, hang out, look at some stuff. Friend me on LinkedIn, friend me on Facebook, friend me on Twitter, whatever it is. Uh, that's where you can find me. Uh, Ilya, where can people find you? You know, I'll plug my Instagram. I had a couple of people reach Whoa. out to me recently via Instagram. So I'm at Ilya Friedman on Instagram. You can you can find me there. And even though I don't check that messenger all that often, uh, I did. It did work out lucky that a couple of people did hit me up uh, while I was doing nothing. And I was, had a nice uh, Instagram chat with a couple of people. So that's great. I've had more than a couple like uh, when we, uh, we we've talked to some cinematographers on here who reached out to me initially via Instagram. So, yeah, it's a thing, certainly for some people. And uh, I'm just glad that, well, I'm not on TikTok, but, you know, I'm glad that people aren't like, hey, where's your TikTok? Because, oh, man, I'd have to figure that out then. How about Mastodon? Have you been uh, looking into Mastodon at all? I I haven't, but that really sounds like a dating website for like, you know, no, no, no. Mastodon is like Twitter if it were 20% more confusing, but it's mostly (laughs) just like Twitter. Okay, gotcha. And it's not like owned by one rich asshole. It's owned by 10 rich assholes. Well, it's owned by a rich guy who decentralized it, so he's not in real control over it. But mm-hmm. I wonder if if it gets like Twitter like subscriber numbers, if they would have to, because uh, I don't know if you read there was a New York Times article that was basically saying to welcome to hell, Elon Musk, that basically you want to take away content moderation. Content moderation actually is the service of Twitter. That's what you do. <laughs> like that's what all the social networks do is content moderation. That's the service they provide. So I, I'll, I'll be interested to see if Mastodon takes off. I'm just kind of tinkering around with it a little bit. Uh, what do they call it for short? Like Instagram, they call it the gram. What do they call Mastodon for short? Couldn't tell you. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it's just like, I feel like there's an extra syllable in there. I feel like. The, the dong. I don't <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that's it. All right. So Ben, let's thank some people. Who should we thank this week? Let's thank Ben Katz, whose job we never make easy who edits the show and makes us sound uh, clear and smart, maybe. And doesn't have to try as hard with our guests, but with you and me, man, we need all the help we can get. Something tells me that Ben's going to have some cutting to do this week. Something something tells me. Yeah, yeah. These, we did. these host raps are. And uh, let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, a producer extraordinaire, uh, producing the, the hell out of this show. Again, I ready. And Kay Zalatrachi, who composed all the music you heard. Uh, you know, reach out to K's if you need some music. Reach out to K's if you don't need some music. Just reach out to K's, musicbyk's.com. Please, uh, please, yeah. just t- give him some form of validation for having helped us out low those eight years ago. <laughs> All right, Ben, I think that's just about everything. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Listening.